You're listening to Becoming CEO, where we share our journeys as solo founders to becoming the CEO of seven-figure businesses. And these are our behind-the-scenes conversations as we figure it out. And these are things that most people just aren't sharing. So tell me about dopamine. Just don't expect the Andrew Huberman voice, okay? I, I can't do... <laughs> I can't do the Andrew Huberman voice. He's far too cool and intelligent and, you know, he's got that soothing podcast voice too. Like if the material wasn't dense enough and boring enough in some ways, scientifically, his voice alone could put you to sleep in a second. It's just so soothing. So I was listening to the, um, the Huberman lab podcast, fantastic podcast about health and wellness by uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman of the Stanford something or other. Yeah. And two um, hours and two hours and 13 minutes long on dopamine. <laughs> and I encourage everyone to check it out. Just search Huberman lab, um, H U B E R M A N lab dopamine. He's got a whole thing on dopamine, um, that I found to be practically useful in so many respects. Uh, dopamine is the, is the thing that motivates you, that moves you, that generates cravings, that makes you desire things. It's a motivating uh, force. And understanding how dopamine gets released in the bloodstream, how it gets generated, what happens when you have too much dopamine, all that stuff is really important. One of the big takeaways from the podcast episode is that when you have big dopamine spikes, dopamine drops back down to below your baseline. So think about like, think about the last time you experienced some kind of like euphoric moment, like a big win, a big achievement. Typically followed that achievement is a, a, a serious lull where you're kind of like, you know, it might be like an existential crisis, might be like, you know, what am I doing with my life? Is this all there is to it? Like searching for meaning. That's pretty standard, right? Like the bigger the, the mm. dopamine spike the bigger the crash afterwards. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of really practical things to take away from, from the, uh, the, uh, the scientific understanding of dopamine. One of the really useful things that I found for business was he talks a lot about not tying your satisfaction and your dopamine release to results and outcomes. And the reason for that is because if any you sort, only, like any sort of result or outcome, any sort of result or outcome. Okay. And, and put another way, like not, not tying it to the reward, the mm. reward being the result of the outcome. So let's, let's use a simpler example and let's say, you know, you, you want to work out and you, or let's say you are working out and you want to continue to work out consistently. And let's say you reward yourself for working out by having a, a cup of coffee after your workout, for example, right? Mm -hmm. The challenge with that is what you're doing is you're creating two sources of dopamine for the same activity. So you get the dopamine release from the workout itself, and then you get the dopamine release from the coffee. And what happens is after a period of time, like you can do that every now and then, but if you do it consistently, you will start to enjoy the workout intrinsically less and do it more for the reward of the coffee afterwards. Okay. And then you take away that, the coffee yeah, and all of a sudden you might not be as consistent with the workout as you would want to be. 
So he gives the example of um, he used to, he, he enjoys working out mm-hmm. and he, uh, he started listening to, to like podcasts and like having his phone with him throughout the workout, like messaging people, listening to stuff, checking IG and dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Right. And after a while he started like deriving less satisfaction out of the workout itself. Cause he had this other source of dopamine that was competing with the workout. I've been guilty of that literally like this week. <laughs> yeah. And then, so he starts putting his phone away and all of a sudden he's finding more intrinsic satisfaction and therefore more dopamine release from the workout itself, which makes him more consistent with the workout. Mm. So the warning here is when you, when you draw dopamine from the reward of doing the thing, you make yourself less consistent with the thing itself. And the hack, if I can call it that is to find a way and and he articulates this far more eloquently (laughs) than I am right now, to be clear. Like I make no claim to understand anything scientific. My family's full of scientists. I'm the black sheep. Okay. The goal is you want to hack yourself into releasing dopamine through effort because when you intrinsically enjoy the thing, so working out being the example here, when you intrinsically enjoy working out and and intrinsically enjoying it means you're releasing dopamine. Then you're going to derive satisfaction from the act itself. You'll be more consistent with it because you enjoy it. And then obviously the results, the outcomes, muscle gain, weight loss, etc., will be the natural consequence of doing so. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? 100%. And it reminds me of literally a conversation I had right before we started recording this with a client who um, who their business usually slows down in December. Um, and like you could almost, not almost, you could see like there was like a lack of energy, almost like a defeat. I mean, we're, we are in day eight, um, but like, you know, holiday season, people unplug. And because there has been no sales yet, it's like, he's already out the game and it's like, he's looking at that, that sales number as in this example, I guess the outcome or the result that he would be deriving dopamine from. Yeah. hundred percent. One, one thing that we talk to clients about a lot is, um, you know, the difference between lead indicators and lag indicators. I think we have a whole topic on this, but mm-hmm. one of our mantras is if you want consistency in the lag, you've got to be consistent in the lead Mm -hmm. or to put another way. If you want consistent outputs, you have to have consistent inputs. And the, the thing is like the, the biological explanation for this is if you don't derive satisfaction from the input, from the lead indicators, you're going to be less consistent in executing. And therefore you will experience higher swings and more volatility in the lag or the outputs. So take December as an example. If December is a slow month in terms of revenue and guilty as charged, right? Like I think for a long time, I think this is still true for me, uh, but I'm better than I was is like my, and you remember this, right? Cause I, I think I communicated these swings to you probably more than anybody else. It's like, 
revenues up one month and like Ahmed is like on fire, right? Like dude is, you know, bulletproof, great mindset, great energy, having a ball, right? Things are great. Everything mm -hmm. I touch turns to gold apparently. And then like one bad month or little bit of a dip in like existential crisis. What's going on? What am I even doing? I'm a hack. Like, why does anybody trust me with anything? <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. and I'm being obviously extreme. Right. But I absolutely tied my energy and my self-worth to revenue. Totally. I still, I mean, I would, if I'm honest, I still catch myself, uh, in those moments. And I understand why now, like biologically I understand why, because I got that dopamine mm -hmm. hit. You know, we have a, we have a client onboarding Slack channel, right? And like, you want, you want a dopamine spike me, you start dropping messages in that channel, right? Like client mm -hmm. onboarding. When that lights up, I'm like a dog mm -hmm. on a bone, right? Like I just light up, right? Um, funny story. People started posting other comments in that channel, like not in a thread and it would like light up every time and it would drive me nuts. I'm like, do <laughs> not reply in the channel, only reply in the thread. Cause every time you post something, I think we closed the deal and it is a major letdown when I find out that that's yeah. not true because you posted a, a GIF or something stupid. Right. Um, but yeah, that was me. We closed the deal. Dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. I'm trying to get to the point. I think there's been progress where, uh, my dopamine release is tied to the execution of the work that will lead to revenue, not the revenue itself. And I think that's the holy grail. How does this then explain, if at all, the, cause you talked about like, you have the good month dopamine hit real high, but often, at least in my experience, uh, and I see a lot of other people, typically after your best month, you have your worst month. Like, like oftentimes, especially if you like ride like early days of like, you're, you're just getting going, you have a really good month and it's followed by a bad month. Is that like almost the, the metaphorical crossover of like the, you return to below baseline? I think there's probably a couple of things going on there. Number one is, uh, it's very possible you have a great month. You have this euphoria and then your energy dips because your dopamine dips below baseline. Right. So the higher the mm. spike, the bigger the crash. Mm. Right. And then your, your, your energy dips below baseline. And then all of a sudden you don't have the motivation anymore. This is, this is particularly dangerous for salespeople, by the way, yeah, you and yeah. I are a little bit, we're, we're far removed from the front lines and you know, in many ways. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so if I have like a low energy day, it doesn't necessarily impact revenue or a low energy week. Right. Mm. If you're a salesperson and you're talking to prospects every single day, or if you're a, a service provider also talking to prospects every single day, you have a low energy reek, you better believe that impacts revenue. So oh. you have a really high month and then your dopamine dips and now you're just low energy, low motivation, you're just not really feeling it. Heck yeah, that's mm. gonna impact revenue. Also, I think the reality is the, the construct of the month, that like arbitrary 30 day window um, doesn't necessarily mm uh, make a lot of sense. Like you're going to have high months and you're going to have low months and the key is to average them out and kind of expect some of that volatility. Right. Right. Depending on your yeah. business model, obviously. Right. That's super fascinating. Um, and so you made a comment, um, about been working on and getting better at, um, fundamentally focusing on the effort itself. 
and deriving the are you deriving the you're getting a dopamine hit from the effort is that accurate yeah yep yep that's the goal um yeah and so like i kind of think the not that i was doing this at all intentionally but like i um you know obviously focus on youtube a lot growing our channel and we have a lot of our clients that are diving into youtube and they're like you know oh like subscribers are growing so slowly, blah, 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 like my views. And I, when I started doing YouTube, I purposely, I said to myself for the first year, I am not even going to look at any of the numbers. I am just going to release an episode every week. Like that's the goal is like release an episode every week. I have no right to look at these, to look at, (laughs) to look at the data yet. Like I need to develop the habit of never missing a week of releasing a video. And that fundamentally, I think without doing it was like, I actually fell in love with the process of creating the video. Even to this day, I finish a video and I'm like, Oh man, I can do that better next time. I'm excited to like come back and do another video. Not, Oh, did that like how many views did that get? Or any like, it's like, I'm almost doing the videos for myself not almost, I 100% selfishly am doing the videos for myself because I find I'm growing just from doing them. And it, and that's the fun part is like, I'm, I, like, I like the challenge of how do I show up next time and try to improve X, Y, Z. See, the dopamine stuff is just a biological explanation as to why that works. Mm. So what happened is you fell in love with the process and by intrinsically enjoying the process, you release dopamine. That's like a... I think he refers to this as a subjective dopamine release versus an objective dopamine release. And I might be making this terminology up, but I think it works, right? <laughs> like an objective yeah. release is chocolate, sex, cocaine, methamphetamine. Like he uses, he uses those examples specifically, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, like chocolate will one and a half times your dopamine baseline. Sex will 2x. Cocaine will 2x. Methamphetamine will 10x. Like that's like objective. It's going to go up by that amount when you do those things or consume those things. Right. But then there's subjective releases, which are basically rationalizations of the mind. That's my terminology. He might say mm-hmm. it differently. Right. But you, you convince yourself that you enjoy the thing, right? You convince yourself that you're, um, that, that, that you're, 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 you're rationally deriving satisfaction from the thing. And then you begin to enjoy it. Like it's, it's a story mm-hmm. you tell yourself, right? Like you go to the gym and you can either focus on the pain and the inconvenience and the lifts and all that stuff. Or you can focus on the identity and who you're becoming and derive uh, satisfaction from doing hard things mm. because it's a test of your character. Like you can focus on one or the other, right? You focus mm. on the pain and you get no dopamine. But apparently you, I mean, apparently, but like you can, it sounds like you could associate the pain as the reward, right? Like, I mean, I, just the way you said that and using the gym, I was watching this, uh, this documentary on, I'm forget her name, but she's like the top, um, like ultra, ultra runner. She like, you would look at her, you'd be like, she's not, she, she's not even athletic, but she like crushes. And she got interviewed by rich roll on his podcast. And she talked about the pain cave and she's like, it's that mental place that I fall into like mile 10 and I'm, I'm 
like at battle with myself in this cave for the rest of the run for like 80 more miles. And she's like, I love being in there. (laughs) And it's like, dang, that's some dark, (laughs) like, how do you, like, what's the mental gymnastics required to even get to a place where you can associate something like that as the, like the winning, the leading, like that leading indicator. I don't really know. Like, I think that this is a goal, right? But if I reflect on my own experience, I think you have to have enough experiences where um, gain was preceded by pain to know what's on the other side. You know, like, and I think we probably all had these experiences if we actually Mm. reflect on them. Right. Right. Like in business in particular, like if I look back on the past, you know, three, four years, there've been some tough moments. Absolutely. And, but to the extent that we persevered through those tough moments, had our head on straight and made the right moves and made the right decisions, there was always something good on the other side. There's always a gain that was produced. Right. And so, and I think having that memory, um, that helps, right. So that the next time you're in a tough moment, there's some pain, it's a slow December, it's a slow November, whatever it may be. Right. You can recall previous experiences where you're in similar positions and recall what came out on the other side and then therefore derive some satisfaction from the pain because you know where it's going. Right. I think a big part of this is also just learned optimism, Mm -hmm. Um, training yourself to expect positive outcomes and expectations no matter what the current circumstances are. Totally. Yeah. And also... that learned piece is critical. Like, but I also think back to the identity piece that you talked about earlier. Um, and this is kind of what, where I was going with one of my clients earlier. It was like, so yeah, December is rough. Like you, what was the January like after last December? He's like, Oh yeah. Like everything picked back up, got back to normal. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, you know that in my mind, like I know that we're like, you have a bad month. And in my mind, I kind of have the conversation with myself, at least now, and this comes from those learned experiences is, well, I'm a business owner. I don't plan on just like having a bad, like just because I have a bad month, like going back to get a job, like you run a business and a business owner will run a business through good times and bad. And so if I expect to have a business that allows me all of these other amazing things, I can't be looking for an out the second something goes wrong. Like this is a long game. And I constantly remind myself of that, of like, all right, well, you know, I've already been at this for so many years. Like it took so many years to get here. Like, yeah, there's probably going to, I'm probably going to feel this exact same way again. But like, I sort of signed up for this and a not sort of, I did sign up for this. And what would any other normal business owner do? They operate their way through it. You know, it's like, so just get through it. <laughs> you know, yeah. like y'all, I'll come out the other side. Uh, it may not be pretty, but I mean, identity just, is so important, right? Because yeah. it normalizes, it normalizes identity, normalizes experience. Mm-hmm. So if you ask yourself in that situation, have other business owners like me who are at my level or ahead of me experience similar things? <laughs> yeah. The answer is inevitably, yes. This is yes. what comes with the territory. This is my identity. This is who I am. Therefore, deal with it. And then the other question to ask is, 
you know, like you, you can have a little bit of a pity party. That's okay every now and then, as long as it's short lived. Then the question is, what are you going to do about it? Because mm-hmm. January, or if we can call it Q1, and I don't know when this goes live. Maybe we publish this in December for the sake of relevance, but mm. Q1 probably has a lot to do with what you do in December. Yeah. You know, we got people coming in right now. So the time of this recording is early December. We got people coming in to, 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 to talk to us. We're like, I want to start in January. And we're like, that's cool. But you're not going to get results in January. You understand that, right? Yeah, we can yeah. start in January. Therefore, results will be later. If you want results in Q1, you start in December. And that's a decision that you make. Mm-hmm. And so for the rest of us, you know, you can pity party all you want about December or insert month of choice, whatever it is, right? But right. understand that you have agency right now in making moves that will affect subsequent months. And that's where your energy is better spent. Yeah. And this goes back to like you meant you made the comment consistent inputs lead to consistent outputs. And um, I don't know which salesperson said this. They probably got this from some viable source, but I, I do do believe it's true is like the results that we are experiencing right now are the byproduct of the behaviors and activities and the effort that came 30, 60, sometimes mm-hmm. 90 plus days before this exact moment. So like your December is a byproduct of, you know, the activities from the summer, right? Activities from September. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. And that's back to you. Like, I think that that was a, that's a great sales frame, by the way, of like, well, if you want results in January, you should start now. Or if you get started January, that's fine, but you won't have results until February or March. Um, that's a, it's a good point though. Like, but it might even be beyond just, it could be way longer that like from a indicator perspective. So like he, effort back, started earlier back to dopamine, right? When, when you're able to generate dopamine from effort, delayed gratification becomes easier because that's the whole issue here, right? What you're saying mm-hmm. is true, right? The mm-hmm. effort we expend in December is probably going to yield results months down the road. And if I'm waiting for that, waiting months for that dopamine hit, that is hard for even the most, you know, stoic, disciplined human being, mm-hmm. right? Delayed gratification is a tough thing. We want it and we want it now, right? So being able to extract dopamine from the effort means we get our hit now. We get our fix. We don't need to wait for gratification because gratification comes from implementation. And obviously there will be a, a spike when the results yeah. come, but the hope is that spike is leveled off. It's not a as an extreme spike as it might've been in the past, it's more of a moderate spike because we're, we've been getting some dopamine the whole way. Mm. So good. So for those listening and now, you know, being experts in dopamine, um, <laughs> I, what, I made uh, it very clear early on. Yeah. I'm not an expert. I listened to one yeah. podcast. Yes, it was two hours long. <laughs> um, like maybe some practical things that, Outside of, I think the biggest thing is just understanding this and being able to refer back to it when I think you're expecting results with not the, with the, with the little understanding of where the, the behavior came from. Um, obviously now people listen to this and they're like, Hmm, like, okay, I have to, I have to find ways to find pleasure in the process. What if any, is your advice to someone who now just got unlocked 
on listening to this and you're like, okay, but how, here's how I've started to, uh, go about associating the, the reward to the effort versus the outcome. So a couple things. One is look at the outcomes less often. Like, like visibility wise, this, and this, this is going to sound counterintuitive. <laughs> like, you know, I know there's people who are like, they've got like the revenue on the wall. Right. And they're like, just counting it up. Right. And I, I'd almost suggest the opposite in light of this conversation. Right. Look at, mm. look at the outcomes and the results less often. Obviously pay attention to it, right? Because that's where you right. want to land ultimately, right? Yeah, but, yeah. But, but you don't want to obsess about it too much because that's going to distract you from the execution. Mm. So I would look at the results and outcomes as little as possible, like enough to keep a track on it. Like I check in on revenue, like seriously in cash flow once a week. We have a weekly meeting where we look at that stuff. And I'm, I, I'm aware of it throughout the week, but I'm not looking at the reports and obsessing over it. I'm executing. Right. Right. So I would look at the results and outcomes less often, you know, enough to be able to keep track of it, but not so much that it distracts you from what you actually should be doing in terms of execution. That's one. Mm -hmm. And two is reflect on input process wins daily. So um, there's a great app. I don't remember what it's called. It might be called Daily Wins. You don't need the app necessarily, but it's Dan mm -hmm. Sullivan's team put it together. It's a great idea. The app prompts you every day for your top three wins of the day. Mm. And I would, I would do something like that either with the app or otherwise, but don't, it's funny cause we get, we have this speech with our clients all the time. Process wins are greater than outcome wins. Yeah. For the reasons that we've been discussing here, right? Mm -hmm. Don't put outcome wins. Maybe you put them here and there, right? But the focus is document and celebrate the process wins. Cause when you celebrate the process wins, you are training yourself to derive satisfaction from the execution of the process and therefore release dopamine. Do that daily. I like it. I would build off of your, um, don't look at the, the, the metrics, like the person who has the revenue on the wall. I'd actually say maybe not go that far, but I'd say replace those with the, the outcomes of the activity, like not the outcomes of the activity, but the activity measurement. Like, yeah, put, put something to measure on the wall, but instead of number of closes, what about number of conversations started? Right. Or like number of videos recorded or number of pushups that I did today. You know, do you know what I used to do? This is, this is kind of crazy, but crazy enough that I think it might actually work for a lot of people. Um, and it certainly worked for me at one point. Uh, so I had an activity tracker mm -hmm. where I had, I had the days of the week, Monday to Friday, and I had the very specific activities I had to execute. So it might've been like, you know, send these many messages, post this much content, whatever it was. Right. And every week or every day I'd tally up my inputs relative to the target. So let's say it was, you know, send 20 LinkedIn messages. I did 10, I did 50, whatever it may be. Right. Mm -hmm. And the spreadsheet would compute a score. I called it the activity score. Mm -hmm. So the score out of five, I think it was. So every day I'm either a three or I'm a four or I'm a five or I'm a one or a two, whatever it is. And at the end of the week, I got a score. And that score was my metric. 
that was the, the one metric that mattered the most because it measured the level of my performance and my execution on the things I said I would do. And I paid attention to that religiously. Sounds like a useful tool for your clients. <laughs> I think we used to make them do it at one point. We have a different version of that now that's maybe a little yeah, bit yeah. less, uh, you know, militant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, and, and my last piece, because that was all good, I think like the back to the identity thing, and this might be a, a mantra, you put it in your you know, Apple notes and pin it to the top, look at it every single day. Um, the reminder that like, this is a choice, like, like you get to choose to love the process. And sometimes it's really just a matter of like choosing, (laughs) like I'm going to choose to focus on this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That reminds me a lot of, uh, Cal Newport's book, you know the one. There's a few good ones. He's got that one about deep, um, deep work. It's either deep work or so good they can't ignore you. One of those two books where he talks about Steve Jobs mm. and um, the the story of how Steve Jobs wanted to, to to become a Buddhist monk and partnered with Wozniak to sell computers so he could raise money to go to the monastery. Mm, in Nepal or wherever like that's that's apparently that's what the story is that he was trying to raise money to go and become a become a monk and then he starts selling computers with Wozniak and then he develops a passion for it via mastery so the whole premise is mastery precedes passion and if you master something you'll develop a passion for it and I think the same is true for a lot of the work that we do right like I, I love my business now because I've mastered it and I didn't always love it the way I love it now, right? It's yeah, it's yeah. the commitment to the craft and the and, and then 100%. the evolution of that 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 develops passion. We literally just talked about that on this last call. The same person that I was referencing earlier, because um, maybe this resonates for some people listening, even maybe some of your clients. But like, I know a lot of our clients, myself included. We were a technician of some sort. We were good at something. And, you know, that accidental agency owner will now like scope creep expands and we're doing all these other things. And like you kind of lose sight on the thing that the craft, the thing that you really enjoyed, because now you're doing all this other ancillary work that somehow fell on the, fell on your plate because you allowed it to. And I told him, I was like, one of my favorite compliments that we get from clients is I fell back in love with what I do, mm-hmm. uh, which we actually get a lot. And I'm like that like that shit lifts me up because it's just like, man, like, because if you don't love what you do, how are you going to show up and do the effort every day? Right? Like, of course, if you don't like it, it's hard to show up. If, if you're not having fun, if you don't enjoy the pursuit, the, the mastery of the craft, because now you're working on a different craft that you didn't sign up for, or that took you away from your original craft, like, I can see how you can kind of get hung up on some of these wrong things. And so the, the constant effort of how do I become, how do I record the next YouTube video better? You fall in love with that. And you know, you do that for five years, you're going to have, in my case, 15,000 subscribers, (laughs) you know? And it's like, whoa, like I enjoy, like I do enjoy it. Like where it was felt like more work in the beginning. Um, so, yeah, crazy. We weren't going to talk about this, 
except for the fact that I just acknowledged that you didn't respond to one of our one of my texts. <laughs> so so you're saying I brought that you're up. You're saying I should not reply to your text more often, and it'll, it'll yield better podcast content. Is that what you're saying? Possibly, yeah, <laughs> possibly. I'll, my lead indicator will be texts to you, and the byproduct will somehow be content to talk about on the podcast. But I'm not going to get tied to that. I'm just going to get tied to the texts. Beauty. <laughs> I think we've made our point then. Yes. Awesome. See you next time, folks. Mm-hmm.